Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 116. In this episode, we're talking about Jewish-Christian dialogue with Larry Barron and Dr. Anthony Ladon. Larry Barrett is an attorney, a treasurer at his local synagogue, and has been involved in interreligious dialogue for over 10 years. And Dr. Anthony Ladon is professor of New Testament at United Theological Seminary. And they're the authors of the book that we're discussing today, Sacred Dissonance, A Richer Faith Through Jewish-Christian Dialogue, published by Hendrickson. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Chris Porter and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So with this episode, we conclude our Christian anti-Judaism series, which we've been doing for the last several weeks. We want to thank all of our special guests during this time, and we want to thank all of you for listening. In this particular conversation, we talk about the nature of interfaith dialogue more broadly, but specifically looking at Jewish-Christian interfaith dialogue and thinking about some of the challenges and the, and the discomfort that comes with that, as well as some of the holy envy that we might experience along the way. Chris, what were some of your takeaways from our conversation with Larry and Anthony? Yeah, I really enjoyed just the way that they didn't just talk about in faith dialogue as a concept, but really modeled it for us. So, you know, so you, you won't find that here are the, the 10 steps for interfaith dialogue, but rather it is this uh, spirit of generosity and engagement and, and comfort, which they have with each other and discomfort, which they have with each other uh, in this conversation. It is a really good way of not just, you know, having a how-to guide, if you like, uh, but watching it uh, live in action and seeing how people actually engage in interfaith dialogue. And I really enjoyed that. And I enjoyed some of our later parts of our conversation around uh, some of the absurdities uh, that sometimes happen uh, in these spaces. And with that, here's our conversation with Larry and Anthony. Thanks so much for joining us, Anthony and Larry. Glad, glad to be here. Yeah. So how about we begin by hearing a little bit about the book that you two wrote together, Sacred Dissonance. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to write that book and, and sort of what, what you try to do in it? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll tell the story from my angle, and I'm sure Larry will have a different perspective on this. But I think Larry and I have something in common. You know, I, I come at I come at this from a Christian perspective and Larry comes at this from a Jewish perspective, but it just so happened that we were both really interested in Jewish Christian dialogue at about the same time. And, um, and really coming at this from very different angles, you know, Larry got involved with this whole thing when he was a little bit concerned. I shouldn't say a little bit when he was concerned about Mel Gibson's passion of the Christ I got involved with this when I realized that, you know, Jacob Neusner was an important person to read for my faith, um, even though he's he doesn't represent my faith. So uh, we came at this from different angles, and it just so happened that we were both sort of putting together uh, blogs about the same time and interested in some of the same things. and. I think I suggested at some point, hey, let's write a how-to book on Jewish Christian dialogue. And the book ended up being 
not that the book is not a how-to book we do we do include like a rules for the road uh, introduction but i think what and larry i'll let you talk about this a little bit but i think what we realized is that some of the more interesting conversations are some of the more difficult and more complex conversations uh so that's what the book ended up being i think we were both looking for a conversation partner at about the same time yeah um, and we had met on your blog, which was modestly titled the Jesus blog. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's no sort of sense of, of I like the, the definite there. article, the definite article says everything. I think so. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I had gotten interested in Christianity, you know, sort of late in life through the phenomenon of you know mel gibson's passion of the christ and the threat it, it appeared to pose to um, jewish well-being you know before it came out in that process you know i learned something really fascinating about christianity that i never really appreciated before which were there are four gospels um now you would think that i would have thought about that to some depth before but the idea that the story could be told in different ways meant there's sort of a role for a storyteller, um, a role for a synthesis, and how mm. you know how that story is synthesized and told. I got really interested in that topic, and as I learned more about Christianity, I was struggling to find a conversation partner, because by and large, it's not a topic that the Jews that I knew about wanted to talk about. And for the most part, the Christians that I knew didn't really want to talk in the way I wanted to talk, uh, which was something beyond, do you accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior? Uh, Once I said, well, no, I don't feel that that's going to be my path in life. It was hard to go to the next question. Anthony was in the mood to talk. And we had a number of conversations, and I think it's something like those conversations the, uh, that you have in the, you know, in, the in, your, in your dorm room, you know, when you're, when, when you're young and in college. You said, this is a really interesting conversation. We should write this down. And I always thought when we brought that up, I said, you know, when we write these conversations down, they're probably not going to prove to be very interesting. And to my surprise, they kind of, they, they held up at least for me. Um, this was a, the book was a process, Anthony, what took us roughly four years. Yeah. Conversations and writing. Yeah. It was one of the most difficult times of my life. I think, uh, I think the, because I think that I had been able to keep something of a critical distance in most of my research up until that point. And I think both of us were very reluctant to do anything rem- that re- it looked even remotely like Holocaust research at that point. You know, Larry and I were both saying, well, let's let's do let's not do that. That seems like a very too complicated of an issue. And I think we learned really, really quickly that there's no way to do this without noticing the center of gravity or the, the place that the show occupies in the Jewish experience and of course uh, and the place and really the, the place it ought to occupy in the Christian experience, although it tends to be um, marginalized uh, or underplayed or um, 
or treat it as a as a just a political reality or something like that. And it, so at that point, when I think you and I realized that we were actually going to have to talk about this and talk about it a lot. Now it's some, and for me, at least it felt like, okay, this is a different thing. I can't, I can't go into this with a critical distance and I need to know what I'm talking about in such a way that I really, I need to, I can't just pretend I'm an expert on this. I actually have to read an entirely new discipline from scratch. And that was, that was a very um, emotionally taxing time of my life. Uh, and yet, you know, I, the, the conversations I was having with Larry were always invigorating and enlightening. Uh, sometimes they involved getting angry. You know, we, we had moments where we were not happy with each other. And it normally was like me, me thinking Larry was, uh, you know, assuming the worst about Christians. And then I would be angry. Like, how could, why can't, why do you have to always assume the worst? And of course that was a hyperbole on my part and I would need like a week to process it. And then I would eventually come around and say, okay, now I see your point of view on this. And there were two or three times when we were legitimately like at odds uh, during the process. So it was unlike a book I'd ever uh, written before. Uh, but of course, that's that's sort of from the Christian perspective on this. Well, the book, I think, turned out to be something different than either one of us expected, because each one of us dragged it into unexpected places. And mm. each one of us, I think, you know, and I hate to, to do a, a symmetry when I, one of my big things is about, you know, dialogue being asymmetrical. Uh, but there was a symmetry here. I think we did take the book into places that the other one didn't want to go. Yeah. For, for me, one of my experiences of you, Anthony, was at times you were, you know, you, you, you were what you described as, why can't you ascribe something nicer and more charitable to Christianity? <laughs> and at times you were saying, why can't you be more direct and honest? Uh -huh. Why can't you tell me what you really feel? Yeah, I was just a real peach the whole time. <laughs> no, I think, it's, I think it's always a question of not being certain what it is that you're asking for when you ask for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that was one of the areas I really appreciated of the book was uh, even though you weren't trying to write a how-to, the actual dialogue in the book kind of forms a how-to in and of itself, like the, the this approach of respectful pushback and engagement. And uh, I, I've known Anthony uh, through SBL for a little while at this point when I read the book. Uh, I was just saying to Larry before we started recording that I bought, I got the book. I can't remember whether I bought it or not. Sorry if, if it's not lining the pockets. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I got it at SBL and I read it in one sitting on the flight home. Um, mm -hmm. And and it was, I found it really engaging as that sort of dialogue. Uh, it wasn't a, a lopsided sort of, you know, here are my positions and here are my disputes. And therefore, um, you know, that sort of asymmetry, which then is inverted and, you know, you've got this back and forth, which, you know, to be honest, some um, academic conversations do look like, uh, especially ones which happen in print over multiple journal articles, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you've got that sort of the tussle, which sometimes happens in print because you're not, there's no relationship, like deep relationship there. Uh, wasn't present in your book. You had it was obvious that, that you had a solid relationship, even one that would withstand 
decent pushback and 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 good robust uh, engagement and, and robust um well uh, the the title of the book is has the has the word dissonance in it right mm. and yeah. i think that that's maybe the a word that might work in that in that sentence because i feel like one of the key points to the book is that any dialogue that ends with sort of a kumbaya moment or like, you know, a happy, happy holding hands, singing, singing around the campfire moment is one that might have skirted some of the most important issues. And, and so I think that we were trying to showcase a couple of those issues and find where the places where we wouldn't easily harmonize. And, uh, and of course, you know, there were places where we're going to, I think that, you know, Larry, Larry represents a, a progressive leaning reform Judaism in several ways. And I represent progressively leaning, you know, Presbyterian Christianity in a number of ways. And so politically, of course, we were able to find some commonality where it might have been more difficult uh, if if we didn't have sort of the 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 political alignment that we did. Uh, so in a sense, we were going to agree on a couple of key issues at a time where political issues were starting to really, really matter uh, in these conversations. So anyway, that all that is to say that uh, that we we were trying to do both. We were trying to highlight the the areas of of dissonance, and then of course showcasing certain areas that where we harmonized a little bit. It's interesting because towards the end of the writing of the book, the word intersectionality had come into you know, common use, and we had not consciously thought about issues of intersectionality when we began the book because. Mm -hmm. We hadn't um, heard the term. <laughs> hadn't heard the term, right. We didn't really do the kind of analysis that said, okay, where, where, are, where are our similarities? Where are our differences? And we didn't discuss them as frankly as I wish we had, as, as certainly as frankly as we would if we wrote the book now. Um, that we're both men, for example. We did not, we then certainly didn't often consider a, a feminist perspective. I regret that. Um, I think we, at times we would say things like, or at least I would say things like, hey, Larry, remember, Christianity has 2.8 billion adherents. Some of those people are, you know, sort of represented in the room here, but thousands upon thousands of, of iterations of Christianity can't be in the room right now. Right. So, so there's no, there's no Spanish speaking Christians in the room now. There's no sort of, you know, global South folks in the room now there's uh, you know, you're, you're, we have a very limited perspective. And of course, Larry would remind me that he could never sort of speak for all of all Jews. And there were ways in which we sort of called out the limited scope of the book. And yet I think if we were going to rewrite the book, I don't think we would write this kind of book. I think we would want to include different sorts of voices. Um, but I think this is the book, this is the book that I needed to participate in. And, and I don't know what you would say, Larry, but I feel like this was an important part of my own faith journey. Well, absolutely. 
the idea that what we were engaged in was a sacred enterprise, and I should probably put sacred in air quotes, uh, because it would not that it, I don't mean the word, but that the word requires careful examination. But it was a sacred enterprise for me. I felt as we were doing it, something like what I feel at a at a good moment in synagogue, mm-hmm. um, you know, or you know, in, in in a space that sort of marked out differently. Um, I was changed by our dialogue. You pointed that out all the time. That this is something Anthony claimed to be annoyed about, although I think he was secretly thrilled. Was that <laughs> he would make an argument to me on Monday. I would, you know, completely reject it. And on Friday, when we would talk, I had already not only assimilated the argument, but it basically claimed the point he was making as my own. Um, to the point where Anthony would sometimes, you know, say that he, he he was intentionally trying to manipulate me by by playing against my contrarian nature. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no. Well, Larry, Larry's background, it, it, Larry has many backgrounds, but one of his backgrounds is that he is a legal mind. And uh, so the idea that you can kind of start to, you, you can kind of try to imagine a, an argument by also imagining the counter arguments at the same time. Uh, that, that was annoying to me. I, I found that very annoying because I was almost, I never knew, I never knew, okay, is Larry trying to f- make this a better argument or a better conversation by taking a position he doesn't actually really think uh, is, is, the right, is the right position? And so that was always sort of one of those things where I would say, I don't think you're, you know, you're contradicting something that you said last week. And, uh, and of course, Larry was just thinking, I'm just, I'm just you know, exploring the space here. (laughs) This is just what you do when you think through things. Uh, So that was always a a little bit of a tension there, but I, I, I I came to appreciate uh, that, that little bit of, or that little idiosyncratic voice in the conversation, you know, it wasn't just Larry talking. It was sort of Larry B, Larry C and Larry D every now and again, you know, a different Larry would pop up that I had never met before. Uh, and all of that, all of that was just part of the process. Anthony, you talk like you've never had a conversation with someone with an open mind before. <laughs> well, you know, there's what is the joke, Larry, about, uh, you know, any two Jews have three opinions or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was the only Jew in the room, I, I brought sex. <laughs> so the the main kind of interfaith dialogue that I've been involved with uh, over the years is um, sort of evangelical Mormon uh, interactions. Oh, interesting. Uh, and 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 I was a student at BYU uh, for a couple of summers, and so I spent a lot of time in Utah. And one of the the kind of pitfalls that we would often fall into is sort of um, not holding our own faith to the same standards that we're holding the others to, you know? So we would kind of critique the other side by sort of applying a certain rigor that we would not then kind of Mm. recursively follow back in when we think about some of the same claims that we're making in regards to the other faith in regards to our own. And I I once heard uh, Krister Stendhal make the comment that what we need to do in interfaith dialogue 
dialogue is, is, you know, not do that sort of approach where we're just trying to tear each other down because we're not going to hold, hold our own to the same standards, but to, to cultivate a holy envy. And, mm-hmm. I, and I'm curious in this uh, process with the two of you um, working on this book, how, how were you sort of uh, feeling holy envy stirred within yourselves? Mm-hmm. Well, this is something we talked about a lot. In fact, you know, I made a point to visit Larry's synagogue a couple of times and Larry visited a few different Christian worship services with me along the way. And I think that immediately after those experiences, we would each sort of press the other so did did you did you get any holy envy like almost almost <laughs> as if like i want to i want to win one for my side here i want i want to hear about your holy envy um which i don't think uh Stendhal really had in mind <laughs> when he, when he a holy envy competition by not holy envy competition. right right uh but i don't know larry what do you have specific moments that you could talk about well first i wanted to say um Stendhal is a hero of mine Remarkable, remarkable. I mean, if I if I had to do it all over again and went to you know and, and followed the PhD track, I would want to write my dissertation on Stendhal. Mm. I don't know that anybody's written that or the book, the definitive book. Just a remarkable figure. And for me, I had a number of experiences of holy envy um, on the Christian side of the Jewish Christian border, and and still do. One for me, I think, is the very easy way that Christians talk about God. Mm. In Jewish spaces, we are constantly sort of, maybe disambiguation is the right word. Jews tend to talk about God in very abstract terms. We use the eternal and the divine and and the sacred presence. And I've experienced what I feel like I've experienced in, in Christian settings is the idea that God's right there in the room. Um, when I, I talked in the book about the experience of, of hearing a, uh, a a Christian light rock band, you know, and, you know, sing songs about Jesus's suffering, they made it sound like uh, you know the crucifixion had happened ten minutes ago. Mm. Um, there's an immediacy and an ease of talking about God that I like. Hmm. I don't want. I don't want to bring it over to the Jewish side. There are reasons why we speak the way we do, you know, having to do with, you know, with, 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 with our experience of God's presence and God's hiddenness. It's way more complicated than I could describe. But I look at that and I say, oh, that's really special. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I like that. I, I wish in some ways I could feel that way. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like the uh, I, I, I like the idea of the openness. One of the things that, that Anthony and I talked about was Anthony's one of Anthony's first experiences with me in the synagogue was the presence of an armed guard. Mm-hmm. And I never really thought about that much. Uh, just wasn't something that that had jumped into my mind. Anthony brought it up, and I noticed in my walking around my neighborhood. There's a Catholic church that was there where I lived at the time. They had a preschool. Doors were just open. Mm-hmm. I said, this is, what does this say? What, what kind of a stance is this? What kind of a posture is this when your door is open versus the when your door is closed and there's a guard standing in front of it? Again, there are reasons why Jewish institutions have to take security seriously. Mm-hmm. But 
And that was a piece of holy envy where maybe it was, you know, a little bit of, of, of holy resentment in there. But said, you get right. to have it and we don't. And maybe that's not the best example. But I like that stance. I like the stance of the open door. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I grew up in now, of course, there's lots of different Christian traditions, uh, but I grew up in a very anti-intellectual uh, the, the the denomination I grew up in was they considered themselves non-denominational. So I probably shouldn't say that, but I grew up in a stream of Christianity that was suspicious of over intellectualizing God over intellectualizing anything. And it was almost a, like there are, there are a lot of congregations in Christianity that would view like a doctorate as, as a positive, like, wow, we would love to have a, a, a pastor or a preacher or a reverend or whatever who has a doctorate in theology or something like that. But there's just as many and maybe even more that would be worried to be a little bit suspicious about that. We don't want someone using Verkan Geschichte from the pulpit. We don't, we don't like that. So I, I think to me, for me, who's sort of attracted to the life of the mind, the more attracted I got to intelligentsia, the less I fit within my own faith committee, faith community. And I, so I envy, I envy American Jewish culture in that way. Uh, where the life of the mind is um, is to be pursued. It's you you get you get uh, accolation. It's not doesn't it's not seen as sort of an antithesis to your religious experience. Um, you know you want you want the rabbi to function in some ways as a scholar in in Judaism, and so that for me. I was somewhat envious of, of Larry's experience. Um, so anyway, I guess, I don't know if I probably over, over spoke that one. Um, but that is certainly, I, I would say that I am, I have feel some kind of his, I experienced some kind of holy envy of reform Judaism's embrace of intelligentsia. So anyway, I, I, I'm, I'm seeing Chris uh, smile a lot. I, I wonder if uh, he might contribute in this way to this conversation. Well, I, I guess one, one of the, the, the things I'm hearing both of you say is that um, in that context of having of, of the, the conversation, there, there are those areas where uh, whole, uh, sort of the holy envy requires a, a commonality of, of in, engagement, commonality of experience. Uh, such that you can relate to each other um, in in those points of difference. Um, so, it, it one of the things I always find uh, is that coming from a, a completely different cultural background, uh, you know, it's, it can be sometimes very diff- difficult to tell which parts of, um, say, you know, just choose American Christianity. Uh, the expression of Christianity in America and the expression of Americanness in America, uh, if you know what I mean, um, and, and that's just coming from the outside. 
but when you when you've got that basis of understanding those points of of dissonance i think are highlighted uh, much more clearly so uh the times i've been to to a friend synagogue in new york um I, I saw an armed guard and it didn't actually, I, I never actually noticed the armed guard because it feels like to me, everywhere in America has an armed guard. Yeah. yeah. Um, we are all packing heat, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but when the, I used to live, it's not really, how many Glocks the pastor has it's whether they're open carry or not. Right. <laughs> yeah. Whether the, whether or not they're giving away AR 15s as a reward for coming to church. Mm -hmm. um, we put them in our Easter eggs. Uh, <laughs> go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, but but yeah, I I used to live really close to the Arrow here in Melbourne, um, and uh, at, when we have an armed guard outside uh, the synagogue, a synagogue in the Arrow or a Jewish uh, school, uh, which was near, down the road from me, I found that super weird. Um, but listen to you talk. I didn't find the the same experience which I was having, you know, weeks separate in the states. Mm -hmm. Weird, um, and and so I, one of the things that I, I'm, is really striking there is that that dissonance um, and that holy envy requires such a deep deep nature of relationship. And I wonder, um, Larry, uh, one of the things that that always strikes me is that. Um, you know, Christianity is effectively the Western hegemony. Uh, it's, Anthony, you said there's 2.8 billion Christians. Um, and sometimes I think in these sort of uh, interreligious dialogue, it, it can feel like um, people are hesitant to push back or, or hesitant to show dissonance. But at the same time, you don't want to be, you know, constantly in a position of antagonism um, mm -hmm. towards someone else. I mean, that's what just what the academy feels like sometimes, you know, everyone's just in, you know, wanting to, to prove everyone wrong about the, the theories that they've just put on paper. Um, but I'm interested in your reflection, Larry, on what, what actually makes for a conducive um, environment such that those areas of dissonance, those areas of, of holy envy can actually come to the fore uh, and, and be productive mm. rather than just be um, points of envy without the holiness. That's a very rich question. Yeah, I can't wait to hear the, the, the answer to this. To some extent, there's a requirement of a kind of reciprocity. Anthony and I have often found in dialogue that one of us can say, one of us can make a point that the other one of us could not make. But there are certain things that each one of us, both of us together, wanted to advance but one of us was clearly the better messenger. Mm. And there's a kind of reciprocity to this. And when you asked me to go first about holy envy, I was like, well, gee, I wish I could have gone second. Um, <laughs> and there's a certain risk involved um, for the Jew in dialogue to say, here are some things about Christianity that, that, that I admire and feel envious of, because there's a danger in that admission, but that admission is going to be used. Well, you know, I heard Larry on a podcast talk about how Christianity was better than Judaism in ways that he feels envious of. Um, well, that's that taken out of context is, is is going to misrepresent me, but it's also potentially going to do some damage. Mm. But I knew 
in the context of my, you know, my, my long conversations with Anthony that he would reciprocate. Um, he would name things that he had felt a holy envy of, and it made it, I, I hate to use the word safe, but it's the word that jumps to mind. It made it safe for me to open up. And there are times where I've asked Anthony why I was the Jewish conversation partner that he chose. The answer was often something along the lines of my willingness to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my willingness to, to be, you know, to, to, you know, to risk a vulnerability. And of mm-hmm. course, I'm not, I'm not a member of the guild, as, 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 as you like to refer to um, the assemblage of academics who, um, you know, who, who, who make up your area of study. I love that expression, the guild. Nobody in my circle would know what I meant by the guild. So I felt the need to explain it to people who understand that term better than I do. <laughs> but I'm not a member of the guild. I don't have anything there to risk. But there was a process of this. And that I mean, and, and we both engaged in that. We both said things that in different contexts, with a different audience, with a different conversation partner would not have been possible. It was a relational thing. And that required trust and it required a, a feeling of relative safety mm-hmm. that you know, was in part the building of our relationship, but was also in large part what has taken place in Jewish-Christian dialogue over the last, let's say, 50 years. Mm-hmm. We often felt, I think, we, um, Anthony, you tell me if I'm wrong, that we were standing on the shoulders of giants, that people like Stendhal. Well, example. absolutely. For sure we were. And you know, we were, and yet I felt like, you know, I had half a dozen books on Jewish Christian dialogue that I thought, well, I got to at least read the, these before I write my own, just to see what else is going on out there. But, you know, looking specifically for entry level texts, texts that, you know, here, here, here's a Christian, here's a Jew, and they're going to talk about some basics. So I felt like I read half a dozen of those. And I, after doing that, I kind of felt like these conversations have to be had by every generation in a new way, right? So, you you know, these conversations looked uh, completely different, you know, before World War II than after World War II. And then after World War II, you had decades of silence where it was like it was almost impossible to have that kind of conversation. Um, you know, Larry, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that even a lot of Jewish families were not having that conversation, you know, in, even within intra, you know, Jewish conversation. And, you know, so around 1960s, then you start to get, you know, progressive Christians interested in, you know, the experience of trauma that came out of and sort of the differences between uh, Jews and Christians, and then you had this moment in Jewish America where you had to make a distinction between whether you're religiously Jewish or not. Um, that 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 was an interesting. And then about the same time, Jews all of a sudden became white somehow, some way. I, who knows how that happened? Um, and so every generation has to have this in a new way. And I think for a couple, there were a couple times when Larry and I sort of reflected on the idea that maybe this is sort of this gold, this, this little golden age of Jewish Christian dialogue 
where our long history was violent, we finally have this little space where there's this little truce here. And, you know, we're all kind of, we were both kind of thinking like, we wonder how long this is going to last. Right. I felt that way, but boy, I better make the point right now uh, because in 10 years, it may not be possible. Yeah. Let's, what can we do to take this moment of relatively good Jewish Christian feeling and sort of set it in concrete so we can never go back? And that was, I think, um, a little naive of me, but I certainly felt that way. And I think that even, I mean, early on in this conversation, before we even started writing the book, Larry put a question to me that I thought was a pretty simple, that had a pretty simple answer. And the question was something along the lines of, you know, in what ways would Christianity need to change to become a Jewish friendly religion? Or what would a Jewish friendly Christianity look like? And my, re- my response was always, well, we need to do whatever it takes. We need to do whatever it takes. And this shouldn't even be a question. We, Christianity needs to become a Jewish friendly religion, you know, full stop. And I didn't realize until I was a couple years into writing the book that I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't know how hard that was going to be. Um, that, that Christianity is so entrenched in viewing Jews in a, in a particular way or with a, a set of categories that to ask, ask Christians to, Jew, to, to ask Christians to view Jews in other ways is asking them to de- deconstruct something that's core to the Christian identity for many Christians. Um, and I, I'll just call out, you know, one of the main aspects and the main problems of this is that uh, that I am, as a Christian, I view the Bible as sacred in a way that Larry doesn't view the Bible as sacred. All right. So uh, Larry, Larry definitely views the Hebrew Bible as a faith text or as, as a sacred text, but it functions differently in my community than it, is in, than it does in his community. And of course, my New Testament is sacred and, and the New Testament is nowhere near uh, Larry's faith experience. Because of that, the Christian experience is always talking about Israel and the temple and Jews and the Pharisees and the Israelites and the Holy Land. You know, all of these things where, we, where because my text is sacred, ancient Judaism is sacred. And, and because of that, Christians tend not to treat Jews. Jews as fully human people. They're, they're either more than human or less than human in the Christian experience. And, I, and it's, it's absolutely linked to the fact that the Bible continues to be sacred for Christians. And so to, to tell Christians, hey, Jews are just as flawed, just as human. They're just like everyone else. Let's stop treating them as a special people. To ask Christians to do that is almost to ask them to view the Bible as any other kind of book, and it's just not going to happen for many Christians. I wouldn't say for all Christians, but that that part of it is so very different, sorry, so very difficult for Christians to deconstruct. 
so anyway, Larry, did I misspeak at all in that little uh, soapbox monologue? Well, I hope there's a little bit of room left on the soapbox. First, I probably would problematize what you said about the uh, the Jewish view of, um, of of you know of Torah or Tanakh or however you mm. want to refer to uh, Jewish sacred scriptures. Although there is a difference, I think there's this more stark difference when you're in the um, so the Reform Progressive Jewish space. But I'm going to bookmark that because you, I was more struck by what what you said about so the Judaism being intertwined in Christianity in a way that's not easy to redefine without redefining Christianity in, in fundamental ways. I mean, I didn't know what I was talking about when, you know, when I told you that in, you know, I told you early on in the dialogue that, you know, reforming Christianity into a Jewish friendly religion was going to be a difficult and complicated enterprise. I mean, I, I did say that I believed it, but I didn't appreciate even at that time what I meant. Mm-hmm. But you know, again, I, I just want to throw in an example though to sort of I think flesh out a little bit what you what you were saying. Really, so one of the big surprises for me in, in when when I started um, attending church, you know, with with my semi irregularity. But it never it always seemed to me every time I was there, the, the pastor was talking about Judaism. Mm-hmm. I mean, Judaism was there in one way or the other. Um, there was one sermon I attended where the pastor was going on about Pharisees. Um, started with a with a conversation about how the Pharisees, like all Jews, you know, in, in you know, in, in in Jesus's time, you know, knew scripture backwards and forwards. They could recite it all from memory. I'm going, I don't think that's true. That doesn't, I mean, doesn't sound like any any of my relatives. Um, then it went on to sort of get really critical of the Pharisees, you know, for you know, for, for being hypocritical and getting bogged down in, you know, in, in, in minor petty details. And I'm starting to squirm in my seat a little bit because this was, um, I, I wasn't, I, I wasn't there as a big presence, but everybody knew that I, that I wasn't Christian. I figured after this takedown of the Pharisees, I was going to get some side glances you know, at the, you know, you know, you know, when it was time for you know for coffee and cookies, and there was nothing like that. And I went to the pastor afterwards, you know, and then and said, "Do you think the folks who heard your your sermon about the Pharisees were thinking in you know in terms of well, well, Larry's kind of a Pharisee?" And he said, "Nah." Uh, they just think I'm talking about Bible characters, and as if you know, these—it's not real. You know, these mm-hmm. are, you know, we're, and this is something that that Anthony and I have 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 tried to explore. That that to the extent that Jews are important to Christian self-understanding, we're not kind of real people in that understanding. We're sort of, you know, we're rhetorical characters or we're fictional characters. Mm-hmm. And so the move from a quick sort of philocentrism to these people were just wonderful and, you know, and, and, and paragons and God's children to, 
you know, sort of an, an anti-Judaism who said, yeah, but they essentially got it all wrong and they messed up the covenant and they, mm. you know, they, they forfeited their status as, as, uh, as God's people. That, 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 that transition happens almost seamlessly. Mm-hmm. And you know, to the point where the one permeates the other, it's a weirdness um, that's really hard for a contemporary Jew to approach. I sort of feel like waving my arms over my head. It's well, on top of that, if uh, just to call out this, um, so core to my Christian identity are ideas like the covenant. You know, God established a relationship with a particular people and ideas like atonement, right? So these are ideas, you know, Jesus' atoning sacrifice. These are ideas that cannot exist without some reference to Judaism, right? So it's, um, it, it, these, the story of the Christian experience stands in relationship to Judaism. And so to remove Judaism from that conversation is to remove some of the core elements of Christianity. And of, of course, that's, that's an asymmetry. It's not like that, that it's something that happens in the, the Jewish, you know, story of, you know, ancient Israel. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. How would you say that, Larry? We don't talk about Christians at all in synagogue. Right. I mean, you know, outside of like an adult education class, you know, you know, Christianity 101, what you need to know, it doesn't come up. It's such a stark asymmetry that it puts Jewish-Christian dialogue in an odd posture. I remember we had a group of Christians visiting my old synagogue in Los Angeles. And they came up to the rabbi afterwards and then, you know, I said, Rabbi, what do, what do Jews think about Jesus? And I was sort of ready for the, you know, the, the stock answer, which is, well, we think Jesus was a wise teacher. And of course, you know, we appreciate that, 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 that Jesus brings, you know, you know, monotheism, you know, to, you know, to a wider world. I mean, the kinds of, you know, ecumenically friendly things. And the rabbi just said, we don't talk about Jesus. We don't think about Jesus. It's, it's not important to us. It was, and I was going, whoa, rabbi, maybe you shouldn't have put it that way. But it's, it's true. Every, I mean, Christianity at its basis has to accept most of Judaism as, as, as fundamentally true. You know, if, you know, then when we can, we can work into this, but here's what happened. Once you know, once once Christianity comes to the scene, but you accept the old you know, the Old Testament as God given. You you accept the covenant as as, as you know as God given. You believe in um, Revelation on Sinai. It's 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 all there. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely nothing in Christianity. There's nothing from Christ. We don't need to take anything from Christianity to make Judaism work. Mm-hmm. And it's it it does. It, it creates this odd posture difference, particularly when you enter into dialogue. And the Anthony and I talked well, about Well, that's the surface of it for sure. I think that I just to push back on, on the comment a little bit, I do think that the surface of 
the question and answer is true. Like we don't talk about Jesus. We don't, um, you know, that's, we don't need a Christian narrative to make our narrative work. That, that is on the, on the surface true, but the underlying problem is like in Jewish culture, like the, the, like Jewish memory of, of the Shoah or Jewish concern over, you know, um, you know, will the Christians treat us well? Uh, is this good for the Jews? These are all questions that are fundamental to not the Jewish experience, but many Jews experience of the world that, that have to exist in reference to Christianity in some way, even if the rabbi doesn't want to call it out. That's an asymmetry, though, also, that we talked about, is that Jews often come to Jewish-Christian dialogue looking for, looking for damage control, mm-hmm. um, storm prevention. And we, want, we, we want to protect ourselves and our people and our, our religion from, from an onslaught, either one that seems to be immediate or one that's long-term. And you've always you made the point early on that, well, that's not going to be a successful posture for Jewish Christian dialogue if you don't talk about some of the things that Christians are interested in. Mm-hmm. And it's not that Christians are disinterested in Jewish safety. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that doesn't tend to be what motivates Christians to come to the to the table. Yeah, it's not we're not interested in that first and foremost. In fact, we don't even know for the most part that that's why Jews are interested in these conversations at all in the first place. You know, it doesn't even cross our mind that something like the passion of the Christ might present a worry of like actual physical harm from our Jewish siblings it's 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 a it's a whole it's a it's there's a lot of ignorance on the christian side about modern judaism all right in the same way no i shouldn't say the same way it is asymmetrical but there is a certain ignorance on the jewish side about the christian faith texts for instance are there one is there one gospel or four things like that and it's it's a it's a specifically it's a very strategic selectivity on both sides. One of the things that, that strikes me um, in, in this is that in, in wanting to make that sort of friendly space for Jewish Christian dialogue, a lot of Christians tend to say, well, we need to do more Jewish things. Uh, and yeah, we are approaching that <laughs> rapidly approaching that time of year uh, uh-huh. when a whole bunch of churches will host uh, setters for, uh, for their congregations mm-hmm. and, you know, you know, complete anachronism aside, um, from, you know, whether or not a setter is, is what, um, Jesus did at Passover, et cetera, et cetera. It strikes me at these sort of efforts while perhaps well-intentioned end up treading into cultural appropriation which in a religious space, what we're effectively talking about is supersessionism. Well, um, let it, me do let me do you one better there, Chris. So this just yeah. happened to me uh, last week. Let's see here, what six or 
seven days ago, a pastor friend of mine called me up and said, oh, I just had a woman leave my office. She is, uh, she is a great you know, person for the church. She's a leader. She leads a Bible study. I really want to get along with this woman really well. And she's insistent that I lead our congregation in a Christian Purim. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> because she knows this, uh, you know, she, she's smart enough to know, of course, that Perm is coming up and Perm's important. And of course, we need to be uh, friendly. We need to be Jewish friendly. We need to learn more about Perm. Let's do a Perm here, Pastor. And you need to lead the Perm. Is she also so, saying that we need to hang all of our enemies? Uh, yeah, I don't know. We need to read till the end of that book. I think more often. However, I do think that, um, I mean, he, him calling me up and saying, what do I do about this? It was sort of, you know, I, I did the standard thing. I, I basically said, you know, I think that you should call a local rabbi and ask the local rabbi if, if this is something that he would approve of. My guess is that he's probably going to say, I shouldn't say he, uh, it could be a she. Um, my guess is that she would push back and say, you know, it's probably not the kind of thing we want from our Jewish neighbor or our Christian neighbors to be performing Purim and pretending to be Jews once a year or something like that. Um, and so what he ended up doing was he, he did, he called the local rabbi and it turned out that the local rabbi said, Hey, just come with, come to our synagogue. You can experience perm here. You're welcome. Right. But it's one of those things where it's very well-meaning. This, this woman was interested in Judaism. She wanted to learn more about Judaism. She wanted to experience something sacred of Judaism. And she thought a way to honor uh, our sort of uh, Christian Jewish uh, shared memory, I suppose, is to to host a Christian Purim service. So anyway, that's just an example of, of the kind of things that just, just happened last week. Um, and yet, I don't think it would necessarily, wouldn't immediately cross the Christian's mind to think, do, would this actually be something that is good for Jewish Christian relationship relations or not? Um, and of course, it's it's totally different. In fact, one of the things that my pastor friend uh, brought up, which we could talk a little bit about asymmetry and supersessionism here, is that he said, well, don't a lot of Jews celebrate Christmas? Like, what's the difference here? Right. So it's one of those things where it's like, all right, well, if if Christians should be fine with Jews celebrating Christmas, why wouldn't Jews be fine with Christians celebrating Purim? Um, so anyway, that's just, just a little anecdote of something just, just happened to me last week. Okay. First of all, I don't know, you know, how, how broad and wide your listenerships are. Please don't celebrate Christian Purim. I, I, (laughs) I'm begging you. Um, Okay, I've said that. I, I could, I could now, I could now go on in good conscience with the rest of our conversation. Well, but why? Tell, tell us why, Larry, because I feel like. I think I think a lot of people would just like why what does it make what difference does it make to you? You don't know what we're doing in our congregation. 
You know, why does it matter? We don't mean any harm. Because holy envy becomes something else if you look at something across the Jewish Christian border and say, I want it for myself. Mm. It particularly becomes something different when you say, I want it for myself with a certain kind of exclusivity. And this is often what happens with Christian appropriation of, of Jewish stuff, is it eventually goes to the place where Christians say, we actually understand this thing we've taken better than you do. So Christian Passover, which is, you know, what I, where I thought we were going, I thought we were going to talk about, is that the, the true meaning of Passover in a Christian Passover is the is 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 the truth of um, you know of, of Jesus of Jesus's resurrection and you know his um, and and that meaning and the triune God and salvation coming exclusively from belief to the point that I'm and, and again I hope this is an urban legend but I read someplace about a meme about some well-meaning. A Christian celebrating a Christian Seder who prepared for the Seder um, a challah in the shape of a cross. Now, for those who don't know, a challah is a traditional um, Jewish braided bread. Um, we normally, we, we, don't, we often eaten on, 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 on Shabbat, on our Sabbath, and there's a special challah for Rosh Hashanah. We won't get into all the details of how to make a challah. Um, but a, a hawa in the shape of a cross for Passover has is is so gobsmackingly, face palmingly wrong. First of all, we don't eat bread on Passover; it's eleven bread. You're not supposed to be doing that anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but somehow, the, again, the idea here is that the real truth, you know, in the Jewish ritual that we've appropriated without permission, is something that the Jews themselves do not understand, and. The mix of supersessionism and cultural misappropriation is, I was going to say deadly, but that's really, that's probably too strong a term, but it's really awful. Mm -hmm. And it's awful from the experience of those who, because it's not, I mean, there's a certain level of respect. I mean, let's, I mean, if I'm I'm going to be the lawyer here, um, you know, that Anthony says that I am, I'm always capable of arguing both sides. I could say at least... This is, indicates that Judaism has risen to a higher level of esteem in the Christian world. You know, but you're, you're actually, you actually see things that you haven't already taken that you'd now like to take. Um, I'm sorry if that sounded harsh. Uh, um, Anthony has just told me I'm, I, I, I need to I need to be I need to be more gentle. I'm so. So I mean, <laughs> so the, I, mean I guess that's a good thing, right? That, that with that, me, that you can be harsh with other people. I mean. The idea that you would that that there are Christians that would that would like to take Purim, I mean, I, I, my mind is blown. I had no idea. Well, um, and I want to call out a Christian Jewish Christian difference here because, you know, Larry, you have a visceral reaction to the idea that there would be the hollow that's in the shape of a cross. Like I, I can recognize that with my head. That like, I don't think Larry would be approve of this, right? Or I don't think Adele would approve of this, or whatever. Um. But I'm not going, it's just impossible for me to experience that viscerally. You know, for me, I'm thinking, I wonder how good that is. Is that going to be, 
is that going to be tasty? You know, it's just, it's not going to cross my mind to think like, like that's an egregious cultural appropriation. Like Christians like to do all kinds of things in the shape of crosses, which is a little bit weird, but, um, but I guess what I'm calling out is I know it with my head, but I, I will never have the visceral, the visceral experience of the cross being a symbol of terror. Uh, that's just not going to be part of my Christian experience. Okay, but just don't serve bread on Passover, okay? That's not <laughs> what you do. Um, if, 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 I mean, there, there's, there's, there's a simpler point to make. The problem, again, with this mix I'm talking about is that the misappropriation of Jewish ritual has an element of, again, this may be a strong word, but that's an element of ridicule which is this is sort of like the equivalent of let's take the fifth grade class on a field trip to Pioneer Village just to, to see how, you know, and, and, then, and, and the kids can churn butter, you know, butter mm-hmm. churn to see how, you know, how, you know, how people used to live in the olden days. And of course, now we have electricity and we have modern contrivances and, you know, and the average age of human beings is, is, is larger than 32 years. And, you know, we've 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 passed all that, but isn't it interesting to you know to go back and and, and look at this this relative sort of you know primitive religion? Mm-hmm. If you appropriate it and while 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 claiming supersession over it at the same time, what are you doing? What does what what is what what is the message to us? It's not a good message. It's not a, it's, it's it's not a friendly message. It's not a respectful message. Mm-hmm. And again, Anthony, you and I have talked about this. That you know, when we've brought up this question to pastors, the reaction often is, "Look, if it brings my flock closer to Jesus, it's I'm fine with it." Um, there can't be it, it's it's a good thing if a Christian Passover makes makes my congregants feel more connected. Mm-hmm then it's good because anything that, 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 that moves folks towards salvation is justified. Well, on t- here's, here's an even more egregious example of this. And I think probably more pervasive in Christian churches is there's a certain anti-Judaism that's implicit in the passion narratives. The passion narratives are fundamental to the Christian experience. And we're entering a time of year when we're going to not just experience the passion narrative, but we may reenact the passion narrative in certain in certain ways, and 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 get our children to you know participate in these sorts of things. Again, fundamental to Christianity. A Christian seder is ancillary. It's 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 you could remove that from the Christian experience entirely and still have a fully functioning Christian worship service Um, to remove the passion narrative from the Christian experience or the Christian calendar or the Christian uh, uh, sacred text and what we read on Sunday mornings. This is, this is a more, this is a more egregious problem. And I think that you'll find for the most part, like my job is to teach pastors, right? So, for my students, it's sort of like, yeah, I can see how this could be viewed from the outside, but my congregants need to hear the story of Jesus because that's salvific. 
my congregants need to participate in the story of Jesus because it's, it's heaven and hell are on the line. And so I'm sorry that Larry feels weird about it, but I'm not going to change this fundamental part of Christianity, right? This is one of those times where I need to tell my, my students, yeah, you're going to have to continue to tell those stories for sure. They're part of your faith text. Can we just kind of make a parenthetical statement that we know our history? We know that what happened, that there's this horrible history connected with Christians hearing this story and then going doing and doing horrible things and call it out and notice that that is not an appropriate use of the gospel. Right. And I think that sometimes maybe that's the most I can hope for um, because pastors are not going to stop using that text. So I guess it's, it's a very small concession given that we have in living memory, something like the Holocaust not something like the Holocaust, the Holocaust, right? So it's, it's a very, it seems like, well, the least that Christians could do is stop telling those stories, but it's just not going to happen. The stories will continue to be a part of the Christian experience. So then the question is, how do we tell the stories? Um, and that's one of those things that it's, there's, no, there's no easy answer. There's no easy solution to any of this. And it's why these conversations continue to be necessary. Um, anyway, it, it strikes me that there's, this is actually paralleling a broader conversation that not just Christianity has, but the Western world has as well, that the nature of there's all of these parts of our culture, which have been co-opted from other cultures, uh, from other engagements, um, and for, function as a, a constant reminder of, of them. Um, so for example, um, the history of slavery in, in African-American society uh, and that being a constant reminder of that engagement. And yet we are so reticent to um, to forefront these things because it calls into question our, uh, deeply our identity uh, because we ourselves are then therefore uncomfortable with who we are. Mm. Um, and th- this is where one of the things I, I really enjoyed about this, this conversation is that your conversation, Anthony and Larry, and and the banter that goes on shows that you are both deeply comfortable, not just uh, with each other, but with yourselves. You're coming to this from a place of relative stability, and that allows you to have that conversation. Uh, and and it, I think it really shows in this live dialogue, it just as it shows in the book. But yeah, I, I, I really want to thank you for that position of and posture of openness, uh, not just to each other, but letting us in on that insight as to what it looks like to uh, have that stable uh, engagement, that stable friendship in order to be able to engage in this dialogue. Because what I see you doing in this space of Jewish Christian dialogue is actually what I wish we would do in many other spaces Uh, as, as an Asian the questions of Asian hate and here in Australia, uh, white, the explicit white Australia policy that we had, uh, these are all areas where, where we as Australians don't deal with it and need to come to it with this position, posture of open dialogue and, and engagement. And I mean, I'm not an American, I'm not, I'm not African-American, but so, but uh, the my reflections from my African-American friends is that, that they would wish the same in that dialogue space as well. Mm-hmm. 
Chris, I'm going to problematize that a little bit because I would say what I'm experiencing is more of a discomfort, but a comfort with discomfort. Mm. This is not always, I mean, even this conversation today, which was extraordinarily friendly, and I, I would, I'm, 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 I'm sorry to hear the plane is, is, is reaching its destination. I'm, I'm, but I've not been comfortable during 100% during this conversation. Mm -hmm. I just know that in order for the dialogue to have the quality that I want it to have, I have to feel a level of discomfort. And in, in that, you might then say, you know, you might bracket my discomfort with a larger mm -hmm. um, sense of, of, if it's not comfort, it's at least the sense that this is what the process needs to be about in order for it to be satisfying to me. Mm -hmm. I have to go to places uh, where I say things that I didn't know I was going to say. I have to go, to, I have to say things that afterwards I said, are you really happy that you just said what you said? How is this going to sound? I mean, is this going to be a Shonda for the, for, you know, for, you know, for the Jews? I should have done that all in Yiddish, but I don't think I could do it. Right. Uh, my Yiddish is a little. Yeah, a a Shonda is shame. Is that right? A Shonda is, is, is a shame. Although, you know, we, we will often use Shonda in, in, you know, to, you know, we see something that's just like, sort of like mildly awful. It's such a Shonda. You know, <laughs> So exaggerated for the, uh, mm -hmm. we're not to exaggerate, you know, if we think we can get a laugh. Um, so, well, I think that there's, I think you're right. I think that there's a certain level of comfort, at least with Larry and I, uh, because I, I feel like we've, we've established some kind of trust, but if we were to bring this to a wider scope, um, you know, then uh, you know, Larry brought up the, the point of intersectionality earlier. It's like, um, if we were going to bring this to a wider scope, the, the, the risks increase, right? Right. So, so, and the, and the risks are asymmetric, sorry, asymmetrical, you know, I, I, I would never be worried. I would never, ever be worried about Jews storming my place of worship with guns it would never cross my mind right so these are these are very asymmetrical risks right and larry would never be worried of me calling him an anti-semite uh, and it would it wouldn't mean anything if i did right but if larry were to call me an anti-semite publicly or whatever it, my career is over so it's it's one of those things where it's like these risks are different it, depending on which place we occupy and it's one thing for me to worry about my career being over. It's another thing to worry about my children being uh, riddled with bullets. These are very, very different risks. Uh, the, the discomfort is there for sure. The, diff the discomfort is there and, and the conversations are important to have nonetheless. Yeah. Thank you both, uh, Larry and Anthony, for showing us that the discomfort is valuable and that um, there is an, an appropriate way to dialogue about these things, even when they do make us uh, uncomfortable. So appreciate the two of you modeling that for us and for, for joining us for this wonderful conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I, may, I may not have always been comfortable, but I loved every minute of it. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. It was a great conversation. 